You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 103. As a marathon runner, I'm not a stranger to spending hours, many hours of my life by choice, coming up and confronting pain and discomfort and also the mental struggle as well as the physical struggle of enduring that for a purpose that feels righteous and satisfying and empowering. And there is an inextricable link in my mind between my identity and experiences as a marathon runner and a triathlete and knowing that this was the kind of birth I was hoping to have. Hey there, and welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves-Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC and director of East River Doula Collective. I'm a childbirth educator, birth doula, and lactation counselor, and have been passionately supporting growing families since 2009. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current, best evidence info, and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind, the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Here's a little bit about what lies ahead in today's story. Jessica learned about midwives and doulas in a college class, which planted the seed for her desire once becoming pregnant for an unmedicated birth. As a runner, she made connections between how empowering and satisfying running a race can be to her desire to have an unmedicated birth. In this episode, Jessica shares her story of alternative conception while planning a wedding, switching care providers twice to find an ideal match with hospital midwives, hiring a doula, and educating herself, all with the goal of achieving the unmedicated birth she very much hoped for and was able to achieve. This is part one of a two-part birth story, and fun sneak peek for the next episode, you'll hear details of how her son was born and call, or with the amniotic sac intact. Before we hear from Jessica, I just wanted to share a few upcoming offerings, both for expectant parents as well as for birth workers. For expectant parents, I'll be teaching Evidence-Based Births Savvy Birth 101 workshop on Wednesday, August 2nd at 7 p.m. on Zoom. The Savvy Birth 101 virtual class was developed by Evidence-Based Birth to give you the inside scoop on how to form the ultimate birth team. It's an excellent class to take earlier in pregnancy and before you take a more comprehensive childbirth class, and it only takes about an hour of your time. To register for Savvy Birth 101, visit birthmattersnyc.com and the dates and registration link is on the banner up at the top of the page. For anyone listening after that date, I offer this workshop every other month or so, and the link to the next one will always be there at the top of the homepage at birthmattersnyc.com. Or if you're later in pregnancy, you may prefer to jump right on into a more comprehensive birth class, and you can find several different format options for that over at birthmattersnyc.com. This includes group class series, private classes, or an online on-demand option of the course. Please also remember that our doula collective offers not only doula support, but also lots of other wonderful groups, classes, and services such as pregnancy support group, postpartum support group, cesarean support group, monthly induction and lactation workshops, baby wearing classes, sleep consults, postpartum meals, and more. 
visit our collective's website at eastriverdoulas.nyc. And the final announcement is for new or newish doulas who have already completed your doula training. We'd love for you to apply for East River Doula Collective's Fall Mentorship Program. We're accepting applications until September 8th, and the program will run from October to May. Visit eastriverdoulas.nyc slash apply for the details and link to apply. Okay, now let's jump into Jessica's story. Hello, Jessica. How are you doing today? Hi, Lisa. So good. So glad to be here. I'm so thankful that you're willing to share today. So Jessica is a former student of mine. I actually think you first came to us through our doula collective, right? I think you came to meet the doulas. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I was reviewing my notes and it looked like you had heard about me initially through just getting a doctor list from a friend, maybe a former client of mine, I think. That's right. and then somehow came to the doula collective and then eventually came to my classes. And you hired a doula in our collective, right? I did. Yeah. Christine Gibson and Jamie Lewis. Mm-hmm. And Jamie was there with us on the big day. Nice, which we yeah. will hear about soon. But backing up, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. My name is Jessica Evans. At the time that I was pregnant and having our son, Jamie, I was living in Jackson Heights, Queens in New York city, but now living in San Jose, California. And I work as a fundraiser professionally and I gave birth about seven and a half months ago. Great. Thank you so much. So let's start with your conception journey, if you'd like, and then go on into your prenatal journey and the ways you prepared for becoming a parent. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what can prepare you, right? My husband and I were an engaged couple during the COVID pandemic. We got engaged and being in our late thirties understood that having children was important to us and that time was not exactly on our side. So we weren't in in an immense hurry to try to become pregnant, but also felt we know that this is what we want. We know we're going to get married. So we might as well start getting educated and start trying. And we did that even before we actually got married, which sort of having had a Catholic upbringing, I never thought that was going to be me, but it felt like COVID in a way helped throw all those rules out the window. So we felt pretty empowered to just go for it. And at the beginning of the journey of trying to conceive, I was a little bit apprehensive. I knew that my mom had some trouble with miscarriages and I'm an only child. And I think that was not necessarily my parents' preference, but it's just the way that it worked out. And so even though I hadn't really had a doctor examine me for any infertility factors, I just was mentally worried that I might have a difficult journey. And so I decided to start trying naturally and let a couple months go by and wasn't having any success and was getting a little bit stressed out. And so when I get stressed out, I like to turn to resources that help me feel more knowledgeable. So one of the things that a friend had recommended was the book called It Starts With the Egg, which I know has been mentioned on this podcast before yes, by Rebecca Fett. It's on my reading list. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I really want to read it. It's a good one. It's, I mean, in short, it's a book that talks about the environmental factors that can have an impact on fertility. And it's not an area that I think has been studied enough, but Rebecca Fett is a researcher and brings that lens to the topic and recommends a bunch of lifestyle modifications like 
getting rid of plastics. For example, stop heating up your leftovers in plastic takeout containers and stop using your mostly plastic coffee maker, which hot water courses through. And she also recommends avoiding things like scents and perfumes and all with the idea that you can make these choices and impact positively the quality of your eggs, especially as for me, a woman over age 35. And it can make you crazy doing all of that stuff. You know, I remember going to a doctor's office and the hand soap in the bathroom was scented. And I was like, this hand soap is the reason I'm not going to get pregnant this month. Oh no. (laughs) A bit of an extreme mentality. I had to watch myself and try not to slip into that kind of black and white thinking. I also started doing some acupuncture with a provider in my neighborhood. And I did it even though I would lay there and be bathed in a pool of sweat because I don't really like needles. And everyone said, oh, acupuncture is so relaxing. And I was like, not having that experience at all. But I still thought this is something that I've heard people recommend. So I should just try it and maybe I'll get used to it and it'll get better. And it did. I also got some advice from people and it's, it's all anecdotal, I think, but that maybe after ovulation, I I should curb my long distance running. I have run four marathons. I do triathlon in the warmer months. And it's a really big activity that really fills my cup. It helps me manage my stress. It structures my time, makes me tired at night and sleep really well and feel super energized in the morning. And it just has so many positive benefits for me. And I just love it. And that advice got stuck in my head. And I was nervous about doing anything that might negatively impact my chances, especially as month after month went on and and nothing was happening. So I've incorporated this idea of after ovulation, I wasn't running as hard and I wasn't running as long. And sometimes I wouldn't run at all. And looking back, I'm not sure that was the right choice, but at the time it felt like a sound decision. Anyway, after about maybe six or seven months of trying and not getting anywhere, we decided to go to a reproductive endocrinologist at Wild Cornell. We saw Dr. Pak Chung, who was ready to help. And so his recommendation was that we start with an IUI. And I had joined a bunch of groups online, which I would recommend people do. But again, with caution, it's it's women talking to women. It's not necessarily the expertise of a medical provider. So you have to make your decisions around that carefully, but mm-hmm. it was really helpful for me to learn about all the different options in terms of having a procedure like an IUI done and the option to, for example, add in medications that might help stimulate egg growth and just increase the chances by whatever small percentage. So when working with Dr. Chung, we did one IUI and it wasn't successful. And so my husband and I, we were slated to have a civil wedding ceremony in June. This would be June, 2021. And we decided, let's just take a pause. Let's just focus on this happy time in our lives and just just focus on the wedding and just enjoy. Let's just enjoy and take some of the pressure off ourselves. And maybe that's the best thing we could do right now especially after the first failed IUI, because our understanding was that we would maybe do a couple of IUIs and then we would move fairly quickly into a conversation around IVF. And I had done some egg retrievals right around the time I first met Don because I had just turned 35 and was dating and I didn't know I had just met my future husband. So I just wanted to put some eggs in the bank just in case. So I knew how difficult it was to do all the 
hormone injections and the retrieval procedure. Went through that with a very close friend of mine recently, and I could not believe how intense it was. Yeah. And very emotional too, at least for the person I was supporting. Yeah. It was for me too, especially because the first round, I only got four mature eggs and that was a complete shock. Oh no. Uh, Yeah. So I had to do it all over again. So it was just, it was wise, I think, to take that break. And the following month, we were not planning on going back to Dr. Chung. Like I said, we were just on pause, but on a whim, I just woke up one morning and was like, I think, I don't know. I feel ready to do it. It was nice to take a little break. Do you want to just, are you okay with it? If I make an appointment and go in and start doing the monitoring appointments. And I had advocated for the use of letrozole in addition to a trigger shot, which would just from my own research and reading these Facebook groups, perhaps help and just add a little twist to what we had done the first time, which didn't work. And Don was super supportive. So we did it. And I just had a totally different mentality. I think because I didn't have any expectations. I just decided at the last minute to try this. So if it works, great. If it doesn't work, great. And actually, I also gave up on the idea of not doing my normal exercise routine. And so probably about 10 days after ovulation, I was scheduled to do the New Jersey State Triathlon, which I've competed in so many times over the years. It's just a favorite of mine. And so, yeah, I went out and I did the race and it was like three hours of pretty hard racing. Mm -hmm. It felt amazing. Mm -hmm. And that afternoon we went to a friend's house. They had just purchased a new house and I had a big glass of Sancerre, which tasted so good on a hot summer day. And then that night I was like, well, I think it's been kind of about the right number of days. I wasn't even like counting the days down in terms of like when I could take up an early pregnancy test. I'm just going to see. And I was so shocked to see that the test came back positive. I was pregnant. In fact, I didn't even believe it. I showed it to Don and and he was like, yeah, I don't believe that. Like, (laughs) It's not real. Try it again in the morning. Part of why we were a little skeptical was because I believe it's the use of the trigger shot can create a false positive on the pregnancy Mm -hmm. test because it includes some of the same I'm not remembering the details at this point because it's been a little while, but it can trigger a positive result that is not really positive. And that had happened to us at some point earlier in the process. So we were a little bit skeptical and wanting to be very cautious and guarding our emotions at that point. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. But it was real and we were really excited. And I had a couple of follow-up appointments with Dr. Chung instead of going directly to an OB because he wanted to just continue to do some monitoring. And so he did some transvaginal ultrasounds and was like measuring the size of this little blob on the screen, turned out to be our son, Jamie, and doing blood work and just wanting to make sure that everything was good. And it was. And so at that point, we began the transition to finding an OB. I didn't really have an OB at that time. Actually, I had been with a group provider in Manhattan and changed insurance during the pandemic, and they were not in network any longer. So I was starting from scratch and looking to form a relationship with someone. So Dr. Chung's office gave me a list of providers. So I just called around and I knew that I was going to be due at the end of March, 2022, and nobody had any openings. 
somehow it was, I didn't even know to expect that it would be a competitive landscape. I felt, isn't it supposed to only be when you're trying to put them in daycare or preschool that you right? have to like get in yeah. really early and that it's competitive. So that yeah. totally caught me off guard. I remember just going on a trip somewhere and like crying in the airport because I couldn't find a doctor who would take me. I finally wound up with a doctor and OB at Wild Cornell on the West side of Manhattan. And I went to her, I think two times. And was like, this is not my person. Just did not get a good feeling. We didn't connect. She didn't ask me any questions about me as a person. So that was an unexpected sort of hiccup in the process. But my husband actually wound up doing some Googling and by chance found another Well Cornell OB, also on the West Side, who I went to go see. She had openings available. She was younger. Not saying that's why she had openings available. She just I don't know, was newer on the scene. And so I went to see her and the first conversation that we had, she asked me, what do I do professionally? And how's the pregnancy been so far? And how are you feeling about everything? And so I just felt like I was talking to a a human. So that was a good improvement. It's nice to be treated like a human, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially with big low bar, isn't it? (laughs) That kind of. But at least that's as an improvement from the prior doctor. It was. Yeah. That prior doctor, I mean, I came away thinking I'm going to be giving birth with this person or maybe someone in her practice, but if she's representative of the other doctors in her practice, going to be like at my absolute most vulnerable in her care. I just couldn't see my body physically like opening up, literally opening up in her presence or someone like her. That's some great awareness that you had a lot earlier in pregnancy than a lot of people do. A lot of people don't really think ahead to what a vulnerable space we're in and how we need to have people around us that we trust really a lot and feel respected and heard by. Yeah. I love, I admire that you had that awareness. I would give credit to a class I took in college on women's health. And it was taught by, I believe, a certified nurse midwife, who I think also had a law degree. So she had a really interesting interesting. combination of experiences and perspectives. And the truth is, going all the way back to that class in junior year of college, I really had an interest in home birth. But as a first-time birthing person, and also taking my husband's perspective into account because he is part of the equation. That did not feel like a totally realistic option for us. Perhaps under other circumstances, if we had been a little bit younger, if we were not living in a one-bedroom, 800-square-foot apartment, if we had more time in advance to educate ourselves around all the benefits and the risks of not only home birth, but the benefits and risks of giving birth in a more medicalized setting, maybe we would have considered it. And I'm still crossing my fingers that we might for baby number two at some point, but I at least, Lisa, to your point, had this awareness that the choice of provider really mattered. Mm -hmm. And that in part drove my desire to hire a doula very early on. So yes, that's how we connected with you was coming to a virtual Meet the Doulas event through the East River Doula Collective, which was amazing. And we really had a, a really difficult decision in front of us because it was such a great format for meetings, a whole slate of doulas. And I felt almost right away, at least half of them, I would have felt really comfortable 
having there with me and being my advocate. But at the end of the day, we felt that Christine and Jamie were the right fit for us. And we're so thrilled to have them on our team. So that was actually one of the earliest decisions that we made, I think, in the pregnancy. It was probably around the beginning of the second trimester that we did that. Do you happen Uh, to remember how you heard about doula care, doula support? It was probably in that women's health class. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh I think so. I bet there was like a day in class where we learned the difference between a doula and a midwife. Ah, Um, I love it. (laughs) But I will say this, I'm only one half of of the parents, right? Don is a big part of everything. I could tell from even before we conceived that Don and I were going to have a very egalitarian approach to parenting. And so I really wanted his buy-in on decisions that we were making together. And one of the most important things when it comes to the decision to hire a doula was a friend of ours had recently had their second child and we were out having some drinks with them This before I was pregnant. And we really adore these friends. But one of the hallmarks of them is that they do not spend money frivolously. They are very frugal people and we really respect them for that. But it's just something that really stands out about them compared to everyone else that we know. And the guy in this couple, Mike, was talking to us about how much it costs to hire a doula. It's not a cheap endeavor. And he said that it was the best money that he and his wife, Kristen, had spent. And they did it for their first child. And they happily did it again for their second child. And Mike was actually the voice of explaining to my husband, Don, all the benefits that come with having a doula and sort of the advocacy that you get and the extra support that you get. And helping make the decision about when to go to the hospital and even just having someone there to text or call in the days and weeks leading up and also afterwards. So it was very unexpected that a guy friend of ours was going to be the one who really kind of sealed the deal in terms of our decision to make this investment for ourselves. I love that. What a great really convincing source (laughs) rather than me, the childbirth educator and doula. Of course, I'm going to be like, everybody should hire a doula. But hearing it from a fellow parent and especially one who's frugal, but decided that was a smart investment. And on the other side of it felt like it was a really smart investment. Ah, I love that. I love that. It's great. Uh Wish I could have heard those conversations. (laughs) I mean, I was just sitting there just smiling because I had already drank that Kool-Aid. Yeah. Uh But I could see someone who has less knowledge of what does it mean to give birth in a hospital and the range of decisions that happen in that setting and the degree of control you do or don't have. And I guess one thing I haven't mentioned that was really also driving the decision around a doula, as well as the provider that we chose was I really, truly wanted an unmedicated birth. And in retrospect, I feel like what I'm supposed to say here is that I acknowledge that situations happen that make that impossible. And lots of people who want that as their birth journey don't get it. But I couldn't even really, truly accept that. I wanted it so badly. And I felt like I was going to exert every last bit of control around it to try to get it. And so having a doula there was part of my strategy. And taking your class was another big part of that strategy because we really needed to know things about coping with pain and discomfort and just preparing for the possibility that it was going to be 24 hours or more and making the decision about when do you go to the hospital and all that sorts of stuff that 
I don't think either of us really truly knew the answers to. So that was a big part of it. And in addition to educating us, it sparked a lot of conversations for us around this goal that I have and what can we do to try to maximize the chances that I would successfully have an unmedicated birth and what would happen how would I feel about it, for example, if it didn't pan out that way? And could I make peace with it? Which again, in all honesty, would have been difficult. Spoiler alert, I had my unmedicated birth. So I'm fortunate that I, unlike a lot of people, was able to basically have, for the most part, the experience that I was really hoping for. So I feel super lucky in that regard, because at the end of the day, it is sometimes just luck of the draw. Yeah. But there's definitely a lot of luck in it. There is also a piece of strategically hiring your provider like you did, strategically hiring support like you did, educating yourselves like you did. So it's both for sure. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the pregnancy itself, the first trimester didn't look at all like what I was expecting. I did not have any nausea. I had some food aversions, which felt really strange because I had been on basically a year and a half long journey of really healthy eating. I had lost quite a bit of weight. We've gotten really fit in the months leading up to becoming pregnant. So the fact that I couldn't even look at a salad anymore, which was like just my regular lunch salad every day, I just ooh, couldn't, I, I needed <laughs> uh-huh. pasta and bread and lots of processed brown and white food and like the rich, colorful diet I was used to. I just couldn't do it at that time. Yeah. And also I just lost all my energy, like taking naps in the middle of the workday sometimes because I was working from home, which is just so not me. And I was still running, but I really slowed my pace down and shortened the distances that I was going because I was just wiped out all the time. And during the first trimester was when we started the conversation about potentially moving to California because there was an opening for a position at the organization that I work at. So at that point, it wasn't a stressful conversation. It was so hypothetical, but it was sort of a thing that was coming onto the horizon as a possibility. And although we had had our civil wedding ceremony in June, we decided to try to get everyone together for an actual big wedding celebration. This was during the Delta wave of COVID and before Omicron Mm -hmm. became a thing that we were talking about. So that was set for October, which that would have been in week 16 of my pregnancy. So I was basically planning a wedding while just running on absolute fumes every day in the first trimester. Oh, goodness. That was kind of tough. Yeah. By around week, I think 10 or 11, I started feeling my energy return, thankfully. And we made the decision that we would tell all of our wedding guests at the wedding that I was pregnant because... Only a handful of close family and friends knew at that point. So that was going to add an exciting twist. And I had my OB's office call my cake baker and tell them that we were having a boy, but I didn't know that. And so we had the wedding cake that we cut at our wedding ceremony have blue icing on the inside. So when we uh-huh. cut our wedding cake, we pulled the slice out and there was blue icing. And that's how we and everyone else at the party found out we were having a boy. Those gender reveals are a little bit tricky in a way because gender is a construct and all of that. Right, but right, right, right. it was still fun and glad we did it. And the video is really fun. The band was playing Sugar Pie Honey Bunch while uh-huh. we were cutting the cake. And so... 
That's like Jamie's song now for us. <laughs> I um, love it. Harkens back to Motown. I grew up outside of Detroit. So anyway, that was fun. And then things just got more and more stressful as the pregnancy went on. The pregnancy was totally fine and boring. And every prenatal visit I had was very quick in and out and everything's fine. And I was feeling increasingly good as the pregnancy went on, but I was interviewing for the role in California and knowing that it was likely that I would get it. Don made the decision to start studying for the California bar exam so that he could be prepared to move, of course, with me and transfer his career as an attorney from New York to California. And since he had last taken a bar exam, I think like 12 or 13 years earlier, that was not a pleasant experience for him. And he had leg surgery and then he had an infection and then we got COVID. And so there was just a lot of stuff piling on. And at the end of the second trimester, I got the job which was exciting and brought a whole new set of decisions that we had to make about where we're we going to live. And Don was like, okay, I'm really studying for the bar now. <laughs> this isn't hypothetical anymore. This is happening. And it's so. amazing to me that you took birth class, given all of those things you were juggling. And I remember when you signed up, you shared some of that stuff. And I just was like, oh, wow, they have a lot going on. <laughs> yes, it was a lot. You got through it. <laughs> Yay. I do remember, I hope Don won't mind me sharing this. About a week before my due date, Don confessed to me that he did not remember anything from class. And he was like, can you give me like a cheat sheet or a crash course? Like, I don't know what's sure. coming and I know it's coming really soon. <laughs> I, I get that. Yeah. That's I understandable. forgive him for that. Yeah. Yes, yes. Browning in all those acronyms that lawyers have to memorize in order oh, to yeah. get through them. So. And remind me, was your class... Uh, all virtual. It was. Yeah, I thought it was. Okay. Yeah. And that's even harder to just stay engaged for, for sure. classes. Yeah. Yeah. Every class we tried sitting in a different location, like what would be more comfortable? And he's got his post-op leg on pillows and ice packs and yeah, but it really gave us an important foundation. I'll say that. And he did great when it came time for him to be the supportive person, like he just nailed it. So <laughs> that's what matters. Um, yeah. When we rounded into the third trimester, this would have been like January, February, March of 2022. I started hearing this little voice in the back of my mind that I just was not sure I was with the right provider. And I had already made a switch. So I felt like, what do I do with this feeling? Do I how do I even switch at this point? It feels really late. I've done all my prenatals with this person. But the reason that I started having those doubts was all of the conversations that I had with her about my wishes to go unmedicated, to not even come into the hospital until pretty far along in the labor process, to decline fluids and an IV if possible. Just the deeper I got into the details, the more I heard her say, well, maybe, but we should also prepare you for the possibility of an induction. We should also prepare you for the possibility of Pitocin. We should also prepare you for all these possibilities that, yes, okay, those are possibilities. 
but she would say it in a way that was in response to me expressing my goals and my wishes. And it started to feel like instead of being on the same team, we were on opposite sides and that I was having to argue for my vision being like the legitimate official vision of what this experience was going to be. And that just didn't sit right with me. And that was a scary place to be because I truly was like, I I thought it was too late at that point to go to a place like Central Park Midwifery. We had a call with them months and months earlier, but they weren't going to take me on at that point. I'm sure that they were fully booked. They booked up pretty far in advance. Yeah. And it was going to be like another $6,000, I think, that just we hadn't planned for. So that was when I was really glad that we had Christine and Jamie, because I can't remember if we texted or called them, but we reached out and said, Hey, this is how I'm feeling. What advice do you have? And immediately, (laughs) I think it was Christine who jumped in first. They were like metropolitan hospital. It's a public hospital. It's in East Harlem. I knew right where it was. I used to live one block around the corner for several years. I loved living in that neighborhood. It's run by a group of midwives. They have an OB who's there in case there needs to be an emergency C-section, but these midwives really know like what you're saying to your OB and feeling not heard about, they are going to hear you in the way that you want to be heard. And they are going to respect what you want. And so why don't you just, just go, just take a visit. And at this point, it's about week 38 in my pregnancy. Oh so my goodness. It's kind you of could late. be in labor. <laughs> could be in labor. Yeah. Kind of any day now could be, and I was definitely starting to feel some like shooting pains in my groin and like a lot of increasing pressure and heaviness. And that belly was looking pretty big. And when I had consented to go in and get, I think weekly. So what are those things called where you go in and you get the, like the hockey pucks put on you? The non-stress test? Yeah. Probably monitoring the baby, being sure they're doing okay for around half an hour or so. Yeah. 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 I had consented to go in and do those just to make my OB feel like I was like a team player, which is so stupid. Yeah. The fact that we have to do that to convince someone to not induce us or intervene is frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I remember calling Metropolitan Hospital and of course being a big public institution, even just Working my way through the labyrinth of phone numbers was a little bit difficult, but finally I got a one of the midwives on the phone. It was Lindsay Mayo. God bless Lindsay. She was she had some choice, negative things to say about other hospitals, in which I won't repeat. But in expressing that, she off the bat, well, she also cursed. So she made me feel really comfortable. Like I don't even know if she intended to do this, but she made it super clear that if I were to consider coming to Metropolitan, it's like a different world in terms mm-hmm. of how I would be treated and how my preferences would be respected. And she was like, why don't you just come in like anytime? I was like, don't I need an appointment? Or she's like, no, just literally just roll in anytime. We're here all the time. So Don and I went on a Sunday afternoon. And this is the thing I couldn't even believe was happening. We spent almost an hour there. We were given a tour and then we had one of the midwives just sit with us and just answer any question that we had. And she was in no rush to get up. Amazing. Um, it was probably the time that we spent with her was the length of three or four of my prenatals that I had. And those were like official appointments, right? Insurance was billed and I had a copay and all that stuff. It's just her on her own time, 
just making sure that we had the opportunity to feel good about making this big decision very late in game. So I didn't even need to like, yeah, by the time my seatbelt was buckled in the car, I was like, okay, this is where I'm giving birth. Yes. And I think Don had a couple of hesitations because Metropolitan only has a level three NICU. And we had a friend who is a, his specialty is in like pediatric emergencies and he works in labor and delivery suites. And he was like, I would never, ever allow my partner to give birth at a place that didn't have a level four NICU, which is the highest level. And I know that Don, right. He's coming into this identity as a father and he's thinking about me, his brand new wife and pretend he wanted us to be safe and okay. And we had this conversation that we now refer to as the bagel conversation. We went out for great bagels on the Upper West Side, <laughs> but we're still sitting with this decision because at this point the doors open. We could go with the OB that I had been seeing. She didn't know we were up to trouble in terms of <laughs> looking around and considering other options. Or we could go to Metropolitan because at that point you just walk in the door in labor and they will take you. It's a public hospital, so they aren't going to turn you away. And Don was really afraid of this idea that he might be having bagels for one if something terribly tragic happened. I felt like, oh no, the risk of that is zero. My biggest fear is like that I'm going to get a Pitocin drip and I don't want it. And then that's going to lead to a cascade of interventions and I'm going to wind up on the operating table and I don't want that. He's over here in a completely different headspace, mm-hmm. feeling worried about what if Jessica doesn't survive this experience. Mm-hmm. And, that, and both, both of those perspectives are valid. And I was trying to do this dance of acknowledging how he felt. Mm. And also, I felt crystal clear that I wanted to be with the midwives of Metropolitan. And so I really give him credit for coming around and doing what I think he felt was perhaps a riskier decision in some regards and also the right decision. So we basically soon thereafter agreed, okay. When it's time to go, we're going to go over the Triborough Bridge. We're going to go to Metropolitan. We're not going to go to Wild Cornell. So that was the decision. Can I say something real quick there on when you gave those two viewpoints? I would love to just give my own perspective on how I was hearing that and how I think maybe listeners were hearing that. The perspective you were sharing, I just want to point out that there's so much more depth to just the words that you said in terms of, I want to avoid a Pitocin drip and this and that. But where my mind went was what we see happen so much when someone's birth goes very much not according to plan and they had very high hopes of it going a certain way was that then they have all this birth trauma. And then you feel I hate to say dead inside, but just to compare the concern, because many people might hear that and be like, well, Don, like, He's concerned about the physical life of you and the baby, but the mental health life, our wellness, our mental wellness is also everything. And so I, I, what I think I'm hearing is that a lot of your hopes were around protecting your mental health and having this be as positive of a memory and treasured of a memory as possible. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. I'm very much editorializing. Yeah. No, you're totally right, Lisa. I felt a certain amount of entitlement and I'm reluctant to use that word, but that's how I can best express it 
that my experience mattered. Birth matters. Mm-hmm. What, it's not, and I know not everyone agrees with this, but a healthy living baby and a living birthing person, that's not the ultimate outcome. That is not all that matters. Absolutely. Um, and it, it doesn't always have to be an either or choice. Absolutely. It, we can raise the bar for the experience that birthing people have. And we should, we really, we, we should just expect more. Yep. Um, That's why I'm doing this work. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Named my business <laughs> Birth Matters. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. I didn't mention it, but I immersed myself in reading a lot of books around natural childbirth and home birth. I'm actually forgetting some of the authors. Maybe you can include some of those in the show notes. They just reading the empowering stories of settings and providers who normalize a physiological birth was really empowering to me. And I also maybe can pause and share here that as a marathon runner, I'm not a stranger to spending hours, many hours of my life by choice, coming up and confronting pain and discomfort and the also the mental struggle as well as the physical struggle of enduring that for a purpose that feels righteous and satisfying and empowering. And there is an inextricable link in my mind between my identity and experiences as a marathon runner and a triathlete and knowing that this was the kind of birth I was hoping to have. That it's the same part of me that found a poignancy and a beauty and meaning in that experience that someone else might consider to just be awful. And why would you do that? And why would you subject yourself to pain? For me, it just carries intense, vast meaning and it's part of who I am. I was I'm getting so many chills. I yeah, love it. Thank you. <laughs> And, and I can say like sort of transitioning to my birth story, Lisa did an incredible job preparing me for what my headspace would be like in those final hours of giving birth. And there was not a lot of coherent thinking. I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but there was not a lot of coherent thinking, but for anyone who has run the New York city marathon, they will understand when I say, I kept thinking to myself, Am I at the Willis Avenue bridge yet? Which is around mile 19 or 20 of the race. And for most runners, that's where the going starts to get tough. And I just kept thinking, I wonder if I can turn and ask Jamie, who's the doula there with us. But she won't understand what I'm saying when I say, am I at the Willis Avenue bridge yet? Like she'll think I've kind of lost it. And like, no one knows when this labor is going to be over. It's going to take its own course. But I just, I kept envisioning myself on the road in the New York City Marathon and just, I don't know, it just, that was how I pictured my own experience at the time. And the parallels shocked even me. And I already came in thinking, oh, these two experiences are, they originate from the same place. And maybe there's going to be some overlap. It's how I think about it. It was complete one-to-one overlap in the two experiences. Yeah. Yeah. The strategies. Love it. Yeah facing myself, understanding, like reserving energy and knowing that the hardest part is yet to come and that there's going to be this amazing 
finish moment, mm-hmm. all of that. So that's great. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, do you want to go ahead and start from the beginning on your birth story? Unless there's yeah. anything else you wanted to share about I don't pregnancy? Think so I was due on March 30th and my plan was to keep working. I was working at home up until basically like the last possible minute. So I could preserve all my maternity leave for actually being with a baby. Mm-hmm. And as the due date approached, I was really trying to get out and walk more. I had become a little bit sedate. It was the dead of winter and it was really cold and I just hadn't been getting out and getting as much exercise, but I felt like walking might just help the baby kind of drop a little lower into the pelvis and be good for me and be a distraction. So Don and I started like taking the car out and going on really beautiful walks. So we walked through the cherry blossoms at Flushing Meadows Park. We walked along the waterfront in Long Island City at Gantry State Park. And then on April 2nd, we went for a beautiful walk at Rockefeller State Park up in Westchester. And I just remember it was starting to feel like spring and my jacket was too hot. And there were these like flowers blooming on the trees. And I just thought, I'll never experience spring the same way again. I'm about to have a baby. And it felt like the whole world was having a baby, like with all the flowers blooming and trees budding. And it was just so beautiful. And my mom had this prediction that I was going to have the baby on April 3rd. And I, I don't know where that came from. That was uncharacteristic of my mom to say something like that. Maybe that got in my head and influenced me because it turned out she was right. Wow. Yeah. That's really Um, cool. And so we went on that last walk at Rockefeller on April 2nd and around four in the morning, the next morning, so Sunday morning, I woke up and it felt like I had period cramp and I had not had any Braxton Hicks contractions. I had no idea what a contraction felt like. I just was so curious, honestly, and I was kind of hoping to have some Braxton Hicks contractions just so I would know because the suspense was killing me. And I think I was a little even disappointed. I was like, oh, it's just like a period cramp. This is so boring. And I'm sorry, I missed how many weeks are you at this point? I was 40 weeks and four days, but it was different from a period cramp because it would start and build and hit like a high point. And then within a few seconds, start to subside. So I remember waking up and be like, I'm noticing this, but I don't want to check the time. I just want to just see what's going on and try not to think. And one of the big takeaways from your class was that if possible, try not to engage the thinking and analytical part of the brain too much. That Doing that can actually impede labor. And once I had a sense that this might be labor, I was like, let's go. <laughs> I don't want to do anything to slow it down. And so I didn't want to even look at my phone to see words or see the time. I was like, I'm just going to let my reptilian brain lead right now. Nice. But you know, after uh, 10 minutes or so, I think it got the best of me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't last very long. As I was 4.30, I went to the bathroom and I saw like the first little bits of bloody show and I was so excited. <laughs> Glad you were excited instead of scared because so many people when they see that are like, oh, is this normal? I don't know. Even if you heard it in class that it was normal, it can be like, oh, bleeding. That's not normal. But yeah, great. I figured after we crossed 40 week mark, like that it's yeah. going to be a good <laughs> indicator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I woke up Don. 
and maybe we timed a few contractions, but he was really smart and said, I think we should try to go back to sleep. Like we could have a really long day ahead of us. So we did. And then I think I woke up again, like an hour and a half later and he made me a bowl of oatmeal and I I ate it in bed. And we actually, we went back to sleep again after that. And I think around 9am I was up for the day. I couldn't sleep through the contractions anymore. I texted the doulas and that's when they were like, okay, Jamie's on call. So Jamie's going to be your doula. I was like, okay, great. We're going to have a doula named Jamie and a son soon named Jamie. All right. (laughs) And they were like, you can time the contractions, but don't be obsessed with that. Cause for the reason that I mentioned, like, it's just, what is it going to do? So just keep in touch. And I actually, I wrote my birth story down five days after having Jamie. So I have some of these details, which I've forgotten, but I'm looking at it right now to remind myself. And I wrote down that at 1030 in the morning, the first very intense contractions started happening. And that's when I started doing some vocalizing to get through the contraction. I think it, I mean, it helped me, but I also wanted to have a way to tell Don to signal to him what I was going through. And so I would do this like low, like guttural type of moan. And I would increase the volume as the intensity increased. And then like my voice would also taper off with the contraction. So he would have some way of understanding within the contraction and then across contractions as it got louder and louder gradually over the hours that like where I was from an intensity standpoint, because I already was at a point where it wasn't super easy to talk and communicate. I called my mom to tell her I was in labor and it was a very short conversation. In my mind, I had hoped that we would have some final words of encouragement or support and I couldn't do any of that. It was just like, mom, I'm in labor. Like I gotta go. (laughs) Bye. Here comes the next one. (laughs) Yeah. And I kept eating. Don made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I laid on a towel and we tried to watch some TV and you had recommended maybe we put on like a silly movie or just something like the comfort food version of TV or movie entertainment. And I didn't want to have really sound around me. I tried listening to some jazz and I was like, this jazz is so annoying. (laughs) I I needed just quiet. I just Mm. getting into where I needed quiet. So I was laying in the bed in the dark bedroom with the door closed for a little while. And I heard (laughs) go into our closet where all of our cleaning supplies were He had his own, I think, like nesting attack. He needed to (laughs) mop the kitchen floor. I think he vacuumed maybe. I've Um, never heard the term nesting attack. I love it. Well, Because there was all this commotion out there and I I was a little bit annoyed by it. Oh yeah. You're like, no sound. I just, I wanted quiet and calm. And then I could smell like the spray of the Swiffer liquid on the floor. And it was like, just smelled not just me. (laughs) But I was like, he's got to do his he thing. Needs to do this. My thing. It's really, it's cute. You'll laugh at it someday. So we started timing contractions again around two o'clock and they were a full minute long and they were like two or three minutes apart. And it was getting really intense. I was up on my feet. I was bent over at the waist, leaning on any kind of furniture I could find. For some odd reason, I couldn't put my left heel on the floor. Like I was standing up on my tiptoes. Don't know why. Just kind of remember that weird detail. That's very interesting. Yeah. Don 
I called the hospital and just let them know we might see you guys pretty soon. They were like, cool, come on whenever. And he coordinated with Jamie and he took your good advice to go in another room so that I didn't have to hear all the logistics and just again, to try and protect my brain and that need that I had for quiet. And nice. yeah, so he arranged for Jamie to meet us at our apartment and we thought we'll see at that point when we need to go to the hospital. But I didn't have pants on at that point. I was wearing like a big disposable like diaper thing, just like riding with it. And I remember thinking, I'm at a point where it's going to be really difficult to put pants on. And if I don't get pants on and get out the door pretty soon, I don't think I'm going to be able to. The contractions were coming very quickly and they were very intense. And so... Don was actually in the middle of heating up food. Like he had said, I want to order some delivery. And I was like, we don't have time for delivery. That's going to take an hour. I don't think I have an hour left in me. So he was heating up some chicken wings that we had ordered from the night before. And honestly, when we got home from the hospital three days later, there were chicken wings in the microwave. We never Mm -hmm. ate those. It became very clear quickly that I needed to get the pants on. Let's get the bags. And like, as soon as Jamie gets here, we're going to put her in the car. We're just going to go. I couldn't wait any longer. So we made our way downstairs and we lived in a co-op building. So we had to go down the elevator. And I remember having two contractions in the lobby of our building. They were so fast. I was only able to walk like a short distance before another one would happen. And I needed to bend over because that was just the position I was getting comfortable in. And then I made it out through the front door and I'm bending over and we lived on an open street on 34th Avenue in Queens, which was just this project that developed during COVID to give us and our neighbors more open space. And I had been a volunteer with it for over a year and just helping putting out the barricades and taking them down. So it's a Sunday. It was warm. It's springtime. The street was packed with people. And I'm there like just moaning really loud and Probably a bunch of people around here, you know. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely saw a few neighbors and Don's like, she's fine. She's fine. And I was like, I'm not fine. I'm so hot. And I was wearing a mask because we were in our building and we were masking in the elevator and the hall and everything at that point. And I remember feeling like I might rip somebody's head off if they looked at me the wrong way. I was just like in a kind of a fragile state. And Don, he had to go out the front door and on to the sidewalk and then into the garage on our building to bring the car out. And for whatever reason, I wanted to spend as little time as possible in the car. So I wanted to walk and walking felt good for me. So I wanted to walk to the garage and then get in the car once Jamie got there, which was like any minute. But Don left me just out in front of the building and he like ran to get the car. And I was so mad. And I started crying because I wanted to walk to the car. It's like, what difference does it really make? But I was so mad at him. Mm -hmm. But he didn't know. Anyway, Jamie came. She said in the front, I got in the back seat and was kneeling. We have an SUV and I was like kneeling over the back seat with my belly hanging down and I felt like a dog kind of draped over the back and my head was in the back of the car. And I'm looking out the back window and we're driving over the Triborough Bridge and they put all the windows down because I was like dripping in sweat and I was so hot. And Jamie walked me up to the fourth floor at the hospital and she was just so nice because I was really moaning really loudly. And she just kept saying, don't worry, she's totally fine. She's in labor. She's doing good. And we're just going to go up to the fourth floor. And she just like warded everybody off around me and got me up there. We went into triage. 
And that's, that was the most difficult point because they had a sense of who I was, but they didn't really have my medical records. I had tried to send them over, but there were about a million questions about the prenatal care I had received. I was asked for my birth plan like eight different times, which in retrospect, I should have been thanking every single person, but I was just so annoyed. Like <laughs> asking sure. me for this, like, I like already gave to it give to birth. Yeah. It was just really intense. And that room was so teeny tiny. And the, some listeners may not know in my triage room, there was barely enough room for three adults in a suitcase. And we had all of that. And also the bed that they put me on was in an upright position. And it was a really short bed. So it was almost like a chair. There was no place to put my legs mm. up and out. Mm. So I was like curled on my side and just super uncomfortable and getting peppered with questions. And I think I definitely was not the nicest to one of the nurses and she smelled like cigarettes. And I think I was really just sensitive to smells and oh, sounds. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, anyway, I encouraged them to ask Don questions. I think you had said, try to deflect, let someone who's not in labor do the talking if possible. Those medical questions often, they insist that it has to be you, right? So that can be super hard in the intensity of labor. Yep. It was. Oh. Finally, they were like, would you like a cervical check? And I had not had one my entire pregnancy. I just felt like there was no point having one. I didn't want to risk getting an infection. I thought that was, yeah. And that was a wake up call because it was very unpleasant. It was for people who maybe have experienced assault. I could understand why that would be very deeply triggering and problematic, but I was told I was somewhere between six and a half and seven centimeters, which kind of explained why I was in the condition I was in. Yeah. I was quite happy to hear that news. Oh, good. It was good. like a little bit of empirical information to help me process what I was experiencing. And I was really proud of myself for waiting that long to show up to the hospital. Absolutely. I was like, the plan is working. Like Yay. I have like three centimeters to go. I think at that point it was probably around four o'clock and six hours later, Jamie was born. So I mean, things were really happening fast. They tried to give me a Heplock, which I agreed to as long as nothing was connected to it. And I was just really swollen. So they tried three times in the triage room and they couldn't find a vein. And that honestly, that was as painful and unpleasant as the contractions themselves. And I was so glad when they were ready to give up. They were like, let's just move her into a room. She doesn't want it anyway. I feel like at an OB driven hospital that probably would not have been allowed, but maybe under the care of midwives, they were willing to come back to it at a later time. So that was cool. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I brought my own gown. I never put it on. I brought a different bra to put on, never put it on. I never put on hospital socks. I gave birth in a pair of running socks. I don't know how any of that happened, but I think I just chalk it up to the fact that I was so far along and like already in transition when I arrived that nobody expects you to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was the chaos of the moment. Uh-huh. And I, I couldn't talk at that point to be like, Don, open my suitcase. And then this packing cube, I've got like my cute little gown that my mom sent to me. <laughs> yeah, None of that was happening. So I got out of the triage room and into the labor and delivery room. And I don't really remember from moment to moment what was happening. I just remember some of the big sort of shifts in my position. So I started in that room, leaning over the bed, standing up and draping my chest over the bed. And at a certain point, there was a midwife student who was primarily assigned to me as well as a labor and delivery nurse. And they were like, you're bent over so far. 
this might not be the best position for helping your labor progress in terms of helping the baby descend more into the pelvis. And how would you feel about maybe transitioning to get on the ball? And I was having a lot of back pain, but I said, okay, I'll try it. And later I found out that they were like, where is the, where's the ball? And they're looking around. My husband was sitting on the ball. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to get him off the ball so I could get on the ball. Excuse me, sir. Yeah. And then I just sat on it and they were like, oh no, hold on. We need to put like a pad. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Jamie and Don both tried to to squeeze my hips and apply pressure. And I just didn't want to be touched. I needed one thing, which was needed to hold someone's hand. So I held Don's hand. And when Don needed a little bit of a break to go to the bathroom, whatever, I held Jamie's hand and that was it. And I was super thankful for your advice not to wear my wedding rings. Mm -hmm. I felt really conflicted about that because they're so special to me. And I couldn't imagine having this big life moment without, and we were newlyweds and not having this jewelry, but I'm so glad we listened to you because someone's hand would have been bloody, probably mine, maybe Jamie's, maybe John's. So it was a good decision. Don left his wedding ring. We didn't even bring our jewelry to the hospital. And I'm so glad. And the nurse was with me. I will say I was still just relying on vocalizing to manage the intensity. And she also, she used this phrase that I don't remember now, but I wrote it down. And the phrase was, let the pain melt. And she just kept saying it over and over. And something about that worked for me. She would just say it as the contraction was building, let the pain melt. So just let it, I would just focus on it's going to melt away. Just ride it out because it always does. It always goes away. And then you're back at you're back to zero, even if just for a minute. Can I just make a comment on that phrase? I really like that a lot. And what occurred to me is that sometimes people in labor will start to get in the intensity of where you're talking about the time in labor you're talking about will get so tense just because it's just challenging that then it makes it start feeling like the contractions are lasting longer than they actually are because we're holding so much tension. And so I love that idea of letting the pain melt of riding that wave, like saying goodbye to it and just like releasing all that tension, any tension that might've developed during that intensity so that we're not experiencing more pain or intensity for longer than we need to. Right. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I love that phrase. Yeah, me too. The anesthesiologist did come in. I was probably nine centimeters at that point, just guessing. And she did put a heplock in my hand. She got it on, I think the first or second try. So it wasn't terrible. And they didn't hook me up to an IV. They were super respectful of every last wish that I had. And the only other time I got mad at Don was he left my water bottle and my snacks in the car. We had prepared that I was going to hydrate on my own and eat during labor. And the hospital had said that they were okay with that as long as we didn't go and shout it through the halls. So (laughs) be a little quiet about it. (laughs) Yeah. Just be subtle. I was like, no problem. I can't even talk. But Jamie had some applesauce packets in her purse. I had some of that. I'm on the yoga ball and bouncing at a certain point. Someone said she's looking kind of tired and I didn't feel particularly tired. I was not thinking like, when is this over? I mean, I was curious, like, when will it be over? But not, I can't do this anymore. I never got to that point of, I can't do this, but they, again, like a nurse or someone in the room suggested, maybe we should try and get her in the bed. And they asked me, how would you feel about getting in? You don't have to lay on your back and get on your side and maybe let's try the peanut ball. So we did that. 
And I was having trouble with the peanut ball. The way it was positioned in my legs, I was having to work to hold it there instead of just relaxing. And I couldn't express that with words. I was having to exert too much energy doing that. I wonder if the size wasn't quite right for you, maybe. Maybe. Are there different sizes? I didn't mm-hmm. even know. There are. Yeah, there yeah. are. And not, not every really. size is right for, I mean, there's so many different positions as well as everybody's size is different. And so it felt really big. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty uncomfortable. And like I was laying on my right side and had my left hip on the, in the air. And I've always had some hip issues uh, running. And so it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, it's cranked open. It felt like the jaw of my hips was open kind of wide. And It also and, could have had to do with where the baby was. I don't know if anyone was evaluating the station of the baby because where we want to have that ball, it might be between our knees at a certain point in labor, but at another point in labor, we'll want to have it down by the ankles with inward rotation. And so that's another possible factor. I don't know, but just possibility. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And I'm not sure because I only had one other check and it was at some point after trying the peanut ball because I was having a lot of pressure and we were communicating about that. And so they did one more check and I was 10 centimeters. That is where we will pause for today, right at the cliffhanger of entering the pushing stage. So be sure to stay tuned to hear the rest of her great story. A couple of quick thoughts before we close things out for this time. There at the end, Jessica mentioned the peanut ball. I'll talk about that excellent tool for labor a bit after Jessica shares her whole story. So if you're curious about the peanut ball, stay tuned for the next episode. Please just know that if you don't want pelvic exams, also known as cervical checks, in your pregnancy, you do have the right to simply keep your pants on at your prenatal visits like Jessica did. This method of surveillance is more common with hospital OBs than with home birth midwives, birthing center midwives, and some hospital midwives. They're rarely a medical necessity and all too often over-medicalize the process in a way that does not improve outcomes and only has great potential to increase your stress levels. Plus, any time we're doing internal exams, there's always an increased risk of infection. In fact, more often than not, in my years of experience working with people, it has caused more unnecessary and unhelpful stress than been helpful in any way. Of course, everyone is different, and if you want to know the information that a pelvic exam could provide for whatever personal reason, that's totally up to you. I'm just here to help you make informed decisions that feel best for you. I encourage you to spend some time thinking about the idea that giving birth and becoming a parent is a sacred rite of passage and that you'll likely be in a very vulnerable state in the birthing process. Given this, you need to be as comfortable with your provider and your birth team as possible. Ask questions early and often in your prenatals to ensure you're in the right place to support the kind of birth you hope to have, whatever that might look like. And if you've hired a doula or you're interviewing doulas, definitely ask them about their experiences at your chosen place of birth and with your chosen provider. Remember that doulas have the unique perspective of having worked with many different providers at many different hospitals and other birthing locations. Given their unique ability to compare and contrast, given all that they witness and experience with their clients, I encourage you to take their thoughts on these things very seriously. 
This is also an excellent reason to interview several doulas in order to get different perspectives and thoughts along these lines to help you ensure you're assembling the best birth team possible, both the best care provider and birthing location for you, as well as the best doula for you. The affirmation to reflect on this week is, let the pain melt. We can apply this not only to birth, but also reframe it for life as, let the stress melt away. Okay, I promise part two of this story will drop much sooner than we've been releasing stories. It's all edited and almost ready to go, so watch out for part two in about a week or so. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. Be sure to subscribe or follow if you're not already wherever you're listening. Leave us a review and even sign up for our email list if you haven't. You can do that over at birthmattersshow.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Birth Matters podcast. Be well and we'll see you next time.